Hello, and welcome to our special Christmas episode of Revolutionary Ideas. While many prepare for the big day of the holiday season, it's important that we remember important struggles through the years that have taken place during this period. Christmas is sold to us as a period where we give and receive gifts, but in this story it was working class people that gave and received gifts that they couldn't put a price on, that was the gift of solidarity. Workers in the trenches in 1914, against the wishes of the military commanders, dropped their guns. Telling us this story, and about the significance this had for socialists then and now, we have as a special guest Greg Briscoe from Socialist Alternative in London. With that said, over to you Yara. Hi everyone and uh, welcome to our Christmas special uh, for 2021. Uh, we're very excited to be here today because we're going to talk about something a little bit different. Like we usually try to keep uh, revolutionary ideas to you know the most like theoretical subjects to kind of help people understand more or kind of discuss and understand how they relate to our everyday in uh, the current time. But this time we wanted to do something a little bit different. And we're going to talk about uh, the Christmas truce of 1914, which I think is really important, especially this time of year. There's always all these kind of myths and stories about how everyone just, you know, dropped their weapons for one day and had a lovely time and then went back to fighting and killing each other, Um, which I think... The more you think about it, the more you understand that it makes no sense in the first place, but also that that's not actually what happened in reality. And I think it's also a great way to kind of talk about kind of the the, the history of imperialism and especially imperial wars. So I'm really excited to start this episode. So as we, as I said before, we kind of remember a lot of these struggles during this time and... The, the this this event is really key to the way the kind of imperial history is taught to us and especially you know around this time of year because of november not just christmas we talk about the first world war anyway but it's really important to kind of talk about this truce and for, for what it is so can you tell us greg a little bit about what's so important about this event yeah i think the uh, important thing is like you said it wasn't just this unique outbreak of christmas spirit you know, everyone just being nice to each other because it's Christmas for this one day. But it was, you know, radical action specifically by the working class resisting the war. And also, I think it's important to remember that it wasn't just this one-off thing. It was part of a wider system, the historian school Live and Let Live. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's the Live and Let Live kind of system? Yeah, so um, the system of Live and Let Live, um, which, you know, continued throughout the war, um, was often at a lower level than you know, these kind of unauthorised truces, but there were truces that did continue throughout the war, uh, kind of on and off. But often it was kind of this lower level, um, often so informal agreements not to attack at certain times. Uh, For example, they would kind of agree certain meal times they wouldn't attack while each other were eating. Or um, sometimes they would fire their weapons in a routine way or into the air, which would present casualties um, while still formally kind of firing um like they were ordered to or there would be examples of like a lone guard and they'd see an exposed soldier instead of killing them they just kind of let them get away um 
you know, get back to the trench. Um, so kind of this more passive resistance against the war. I think this is something that always comes up, you know, in the middle of uh, imperialist wars um, throughout history. I mean, I, th- I think what is kind of left out, um, you know, when we're looking at the history of struggle um, against war is that armies are never created um, just from scratch. Particularly if a capitalist country is introduced um, something like a draft, then the armies are often drawn uh, from the ranks uh, of the working class uh, in many uh, in many cases. In the Russian Revolution, this was why the Bolsheviks uh, placed a lot of emphasis, a real great deal of emphasis, on winning over um, soldiers, you know, to their side. And to essentially say, you know, um, soldiers should come over to the side of their own class, uh, over to the side of the uh, to the working class. Uh, that was why they referred to um, soldiers in a lot of their material, in a lot of Lenin speeches, as uh, workers uh, in uniform. And I think what we see here is, you know, r- a real demonstration of why they used that language when they were talking about ordinary kind of rank and file um, soldiers. Because, you know, there would have been definitely some understanding that you're not from the same class background as your military um, superior necessarily, you know. Um, if, if you were, a you know, a, a working class teenager, because that's what a lot of the soldiers, unfortunately, were in World War One. You know, they were very, very, very young men um, that were... Uh, you know, really pressured by um, by by uh, by society to enlist, then you wouldn't feel prepared to kill you know a German person, a German teenager uh, who was from um, a similar um, class background um, to you, because you had a common interest, you had a you had a, a common experience of being from a from a similar class. So it does make sense that that sense of solidarity would almost start to um, you know would start to develop. But that that kind of reminds me, Greg. I mean. You know, in, in, in terms of a question that I'd like to ask, could you give a bit of a background about how the war actually came about? Um, you know, how, how did it develop? What led to it? Uh, and what was done, you know, in response to it by the working class itself, by, um, you know, the parties of the of the left, of the of the socialist movement and so on? And before I, you know, I'll go into the details of the way the war started to answer your question, you also mentioned about um, the working class making up these armies, but also I think it's important to remember these were massive, um, massive empires that were fighting. So when we say you know British soldiers, that also includes um, you know the working class from India, from Ireland, from all parts of Africa and the Caribbean, and similarly you know um, with France, France had officially annexed Algeria at this point, as well as having colonies in places like Senegal. And even the Russian army um, had large numbers of Muslim population, uh, Muslim soldiers um, drawn from their population in kind of Central Asia. So, you know, Kazakhs and various populations around there. So it isn't just, you know, all these white people. Um, it's the whole um, diversity of the global working class, really. But yeah, so um, the real kind of trigger for the First World War is uh, the July crisis, which was um, the Austrian Archduke was assassinated by a uh, Bosnian Serb nationalist. But this was kind of just the, the trigger. Uh, it wasn't kind of the deep underlying causes because there had been kind of similar um, flashpoints before. Uh, but the real cause was that these empires had eventually run out of places to colonise. Uh, so in order to keep conquering markets they had to directly um, fight each other so 
it was kind of a conscious decision on the ruling class's side that um, to escalate this kind of small regional conflict into a world war where you know Britain, France, Russia on one side and um, Germany, Austria, Hungary and the Ottoman Empire on the other side were having this global conflict and not just a small war in the Balkans. Yeah, I think it's it's one of these things that always repeats, you know, how like when when you're two in school or when you're asked, uh, how did the first world start? It's always, well, uh, there was an assassination. And I think it's really important to talk about what you just said about kind of the fact that it wasn't because there's generally not just about the first world war, there's generally this kind of like approach that one moment just sparks everything without kind of looking at the historical context and the material conditions that existed before that issue happened and basically that was just an excuse that was used to start the war um a war that like you said was in the cards because of the structure of um uh, of capitalism and imperialism generally so i was wondering can you can you kind of say because we are saying now how this is a war of imperialism it wasn't you know and i think especially again during this time of year a lot of people are talking about how kind of like like you know this patriotism coming out talking about how uh we're all together in this and like everyone has the memories uh from like the family memories from uh the first world war so was there kind of support for the war or uh, because that's what we kind of learned to believe that everyone was in it so do you think there was support for the war or uh, did people kind of go against it i think there was you know a lot of enthusiasm particularly at the start of the war um partly because the ruling class were able to uh, whip up this you know nationalist further um and kind of were able to present it as um you know, kind of self-defense in a way because of the causes of the war were so kind of complicated and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that Germany invaded uh, Britain. It was that there was this conflict in the Balkans and then each imperialist power kind of declared war on each other in turn. So each one, so in Britain, they said, oh, we're defending, you know, Belgium against German imperialism. But in Germany, they were saying, oh, we're having to defend um, you know, Central Europe and Southern Europe from Russian expansion um, westward. Uh, so they all kind of had their excuses. But I think the main reason why that worked was the, um, the official leadership of the working class. And at the time, these were supposedly Marxist parties, but um, now we'd know them as Social Democrats. So the Labour Party in the UK, as well as um, the SPD in Germany and all these ex- all these examples um, supported the war. And this is actually despite their international always having opposition to war as a central pillar of their program, all the way back to its founding Congress in 1889. But in the end, when the war actually happened, only a very small minority opposed the war. So mostly the Bolsheviks in Russia, as well as uh, Luxembourg and Liebknecht in Germany. And uh, Connolly in Ireland, which was then legally part of the UK, had been annexed. Um, I mean, just on that topic, it it is funny that, you know, when you actually do a little bit of uh, reading and a bit of studying um, about the history of what the um, of what the socialist parties of the of the social democratic parties and the Labour parties um, of the time had to say about the war. You know, you do see a lot of language that wasn't matched with action, you know, language that wasn't matched with real world um, organising, real world uh, socialist organising. 
um you know the 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 parties like the german social democrats the social democratic party which had you know millions um of workers inside its ranks it was very much seen by large sections of the german working class as you know like their party um you know that that party in 1907 just to give an example um had voted twice um, against um, war and, and essentially said that, you know, while, you know, the ruling classes of different countries are preparing to confront one another uh, militarily, it would be the job of the working class to oppose it. And they even said, you know, that they would be prepared to organise general strikes um, against the war that didn't translate um, into action you know they it, when it came down to it it was the 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 MPs the 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 uh, leaderships and the and the parliamentary representatives of these parties that often actually voted either in support of the war or they didn't take a consistent position um you know of, uh, of opposing it and I think you know what really um was on show there was a political weakness you know it reflected that increasingly the idea of those parties was not of a of a, of a revolutionary standpoint it you know often they'd made a slip towards seeing capitalism as a system that could be uh, reformed um and as a result of a of a reformist um understanding of how to make um you make their way towards socialism essentially watered down um their approach to fighting um imperialist wars and, and that was why it was important, you know, at the time for genuine socialists, genuine Marxists um, to, to, to take a position, um, you know, of essentially maintaining that principled opposition um, to imperialist uh, wars uh, and, to, and to essentially stand consistently alongside the interests um, of the working class, you know, even if, um, you know, those were ideas that weren't immediately um, the ideas of the majority to defend them, you know, to defend the idea that ultimately, you know, the, the these reactionary capitalist imperialist wars would have to be turned into a into a class war um, against the uh, against the ruling class to overthrow the ruling class. And by doing that, you know, there were there were people in the movement like Lenin, uh, Vladimir Lenin, like Leon Trotsky uh, in Russia, uh, Rosa Luxemburg in Germany, um, you know, many others that I won't kind of go into here, um, that by having that point of view had a real historic impact um, further down the line. Uh, and I think really what it shows is even, you know, small um, revolutionary organisations, if they're clear in their ideas, can have a really big impact ultimately. Um, and, that, and, you know, I, th I think that is ultimately because, you know, in, in the context of World War One, what looked like huge support for that war, which, you know, there was a lot of support for it when it broke out, quickly kind of turned into its opposite and turned into a feeling um, of opposition. That enthusiasm um, died and turned into a kind of revolutionary um, anger. Um, so, yeah, is, is there anything you could say about that, Greg? Yeah. Um, and when the war started, famously, the ruling classes promised that the, the war would be over by Christmas. There would be this quick and glorious military victory but uh it soon became clear that, that was never really going to be the case this is especially true in the western front where from september 1914 um the two the opposing armies became locked in stalemate with trenches stretching from the belgian coast all the way down to the swiss border under these conditions as the reality of five months of war set in this enthusiasm within the military that uh, or within the enlisted ranks of the military um quickly died out uh 
And soldiers in the trench were also aware of this class divide. And they hated the generals who sent working class people off to kill each other while they sat behind uh, the front lines in safety, often in kind of fancy headquarters. And there was also increasingly uh, consciousness as the war went on that enemy troops were in the same position as you know their own troops. Uh, they were kind of low. They were lied to by their own ruling class to uh, participate in the slaughter. Um, but also, I think it was worth mentioning that although this was true among the the working class, both in the military and the working class at home. Um, the these social democratic parties continue to support the war despite their own class turning against it. Basically, what you're saying here is that it wasn't just you know Christmas cheer that got everyone uh, to drop their weapons and play football. It was kind of like an an idea of going against not not just the generals but also against the capitalist state that sent them there in the first place, uh, pushing workers to die, uh, and also the ruling classes generally that profited from it. So I I was wondering if you can kind of expand on that a little bit, because I think this is a really interesting kind of way to see the Christmas truce beyond just, you know, uh, people being people missing their families at Christmas. Uh, Yeah, I think it is important to remember that this... um... This consciousness within the military um, was crucial for the outbreak of truces in the week leading up to Christmas Day, 1914. And, you know, these truces were particularly on the Western Front, but uh, there were also some cases on the Eastern Front where Russian troops were fighting German and Austro-Hungarian troops. And, you know, these truces were patchy. So in some areas, you know, hostilities continued without there being any kind of Christmas truce. And in other areas, there were kind of a brief brief ceasefires to uh, collect and bury the dead. Um, But the most famous and most radical events um, and kind of memorable um, images where, you know, soldiers sing Christmas carols together, exchanging rations as gifts and playing football together. Um, And in some areas, uh, Belgian and French troops were able to send letters back to their family behind German lines in the occupied parts of their own country. And, you know, it's often said that um, the troops kind of went back to fighting the next day. But uh, in reality, it's actually a bit more complicated than that. So it's true that most ceasefires only lasted between about a day and a week, but some continued much longer. So the most uh, radical and the longest example stretched well into uh, early 1915. But the generals soon kind of realised what was happening. And they set about breaking up the ceasefires. So, you know, they issued directors banning ceasefires. Uh, They ordered troops to fire at the opposing side. And in some areas, they moved troops from to different areas of the front to separate them from, you know, the enemy troops they'd been fraternising with, because I suppose it's easier to kill a stranger than it is someone you've been, um, you know, fraternising with. And they did this because they really recognised the danger that the ceasefires and the truces opposed their imperialist war, but actually also opposed to the system of capitalism itself. And in later years, there were some ceasefires, but they were much less widespread than Christmas 1914. Um, and you know, a large reason for this was um, you know, these attempts by the generals to prevent the um, to prevent the ceasefires. So, for example, at Christmas 1915, the Allied commanders mounted offences and used constant artillery uh, barrages to prevent another Christmas truce to happen from happening. But that was mostly successful, but not completely, because there were a few Christmas truces that happened in 2015, um, 1915 as well. Um, 
But there was also a factor that kind of the brutality of the war led to increase its bitterness towards the other side. So it was harder for um, the system of and let live to than for truces to really be arranged. And, you know, again, the generals were really aware of this and they arranged offensives to try and break up the attitude of uh, live and let live and anti-war sentiment. And sometimes they kind of analysed casualty statistics. They could detect where um, resistance to the war was being secretly implemented so they could focus on those areas to prevent any radical action from taking place. Yeah, I mean, on, on a previous episode uh, of this podcast, uh, episode 13, um, we discussed how uh, the Russian Revolution, uh, particularly uh, October 1917, when the, uh, the, the Bolsheviks and the, and the Russian working class and the peasants um, seized power, this was a, a world um, historic event. It was... Yeah, I mean, um, in, in one previous episode of this podcast, um, episode 13, uh, we discussed how in, uh, in, in 1917 in Russia, um, the, this, this revolution uh, that emerged was a world um, historic event uh, in the sense that it was the working class uh, in that country led by the Bolsheviks. Um, that, was the, the, that was the first um, case of the working class successfully taking power. Um, and taking power in the sense of taking control over how society is run, setting up its own institutions to organise itself, um, to not only kind of like um, to to not only say that you know that the that working class people can decide what happens to society and what we do with the wealth in society and, the, and what we do with the wealth in society. But to actually kind of like actually take that leap uh, and to do it and to organize it consciously. Um, but this wasn't just a, a Russian revolution. It was um, something very much beyond Russia. Um, it was part of a kind of revolutionary wave that ended up really sweeping across uh, Europe uh, and ultimately, you know, beyond Europe, around the world. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, the mo- one of the most important predecessors, if not the most important predecessor of a revolution um, that was spreading uh, across borders. Um, how how was the Christmas truce connected to that though? Yeah, I think they definitely are um, connected, and in some ways, it's the same anti-war sentiment that um, was a very important cause for the Russian Revolution. So as kind of the war dragged on into um, nineteen seventeen and nineteen eighteen. More, rad- more radical action did once again become increasingly widespread, increasingly significant. This is particularly true in the uh, Russian army, where desertions alongside an economic crisis crippled the Russian ability to fight the war. And the, the garrison in the Russian capital, Petrograd, was uh, ordered to fire on striking workers and protesters, and some actually refused to do this. And this led to mutiny spreading rapidly throughout the entire garrison until they all ended up supporting the revolution pretty much. So by October, um, the Bolsheviks had, as you said, seized power with the support of the Petrograd garrison and also the All-Russian Congress of Soviets. And one of their first actions was to issue the decree on peace, which called for uh, an immediate and democratic peace based on the principles of self-determination without any concessions paid from either side. So again, you can kind of see the Bolsheviks were aware that uh, the revolutionary potential of the anti-war sentiment and indeed, the Russian Revolution and the 
decree on peace did spread a revolutionary wave throughout the world. Uh, and this is true within the ranks of the armed forces as much as it was for you know, the civilian populations. Yeah, so a similar thing happened in the uh, German Revolution as well as uh, mutinies increasingly uh, forced Germany out of the war and actually forced the Allies to um, make peace as well, as well as kind of threatening capitalism. Yeah, and I think, you know, now we're in a situation where we're much more powerful as a class, we're much bigger. Um, we have the ability to coordinate with each other on an international level in a way that wasn't uh, possible 100 uh, years ago. That's why we're organizing on, on, the, on an international basis. And that's why we're always trying to put forward not just what the working class is thinking right now, but also where the consciousness we believe should go and where it is heading. The lessons that you've just put forward are not just some things that we can learn, but also we can amplify now and use not just to stop a war, but also to stop the system generally. Yeah, thanks both of you for this excellent uh, episode. And thanks to all listeners for tuning in. Make sure you tune in for our next episode in the new year. Please follow all of our social media accounts. Uh, make sure you get in touch on all platforms to receive more information from Socialist Alternative. If you like what you've heard, then please join the struggle today. You'll see our social media information in the description for this podcast. With that being said, see you all next month.